Welcome to Crisis to Come Back, your Western Colorado climate action podcast. Each episode addresses climate change in Western Colorado with a focus on Delta County. This season of Crisis to Come Back, you'll hear interviews and conversations from local voices in our community, government, renowned scientists, and experts in our Western climate. This podcast was made possible in part by the West Elk Community Fund and Citizens for a Healthy Community. I'm your host, Corey Stanton. This episode features a conversation with political economist, climate change advisor, and North Fork Valley resident, Cal Rose Ostrander. Cal Rose is a dear friend of mine, and she is also the co-creator and host of another short-form podcast that I produce called Rain and Shine, where we talk about nature, science, and how the planet works. I asked Cal Rose to be a part of this week's episode of Crisis to Come Back to talk about her experience working on climate change and the carbon cycle. For anyone who may not know Calla Rose Ostrander, will you give us a little background and talk to us about soil and... How the world works? Yes. <laughs> yes, that would be great. In about 12 <laughs> to 20 minutes, Max. Okay, well, okay. we'll give you, I mean, some basics, right? Just some basics can help reframe at least the climate policy conversation because I think it's really time for climate policy to take its next step in its own evolution. This show has been focused on you know, the role of agriculture and climate, that pairing can, I think, give birth to some awesome new waves. Right now, we're still kind of stuck in some old thinking, and I think it's holding us back. So happy to talk about all of those things. But you didn't really introduce myself. yourself. Oh, I'm a political economist by training. It's kind of an old discipline. It really had its heyday in the 20s, and it looks at the intersection of politics culture, you know, society, religion, um, backgrounds, histories, and then economics, and the role that they all play together. And political economy was essentially created as a way to sort of manage capitalism within the governmental framework of whatever government you were working for, and that happened to be like white developed countries, white Western developed countries. So it's an interesting way to look at the system, or at least some of the major drivers in our human social systems, and have always, since I could understand what it meant to be a person in the world, knew that I was here to protect the earth. And so I merged those sort of two disciplines and looking at all the different ways in which we as human beings, through our cultures, through our governments, through our economies, touch and interact with the planet, plants, animals, rocks, the elements. You know, you go to 13 years of Waldorf school and nothing is really out of bounds. So that's been a, a fun and creative journey. I spent the first 10 years of my career in uh, climate policy for the city of Aspen and the city county of San Francisco, doing some of the first climate action plans in the country. I think Aspen, we were like the second or third city. Portland, Oregon was the first. Kudos to Portland, always. It's important to understand how climate policy got started in the United States. It started with cities. Cities were the first sort of adopters of climate policy, if you will, climate action plans. And that came about after the U.S. failed to ratify the Kyoto Protocol. We might remember that in the 90s, Bill Clinton's team negotiated an international protocol that was supposed to really address climate change. Um, it got very close. And then in the end, the U.S. failed to ratify a treaty it essentially had created. And it was interesting just from a, a policy wonk sort of standpoint, this treaty is based off of 
two successful environmental policies that came previously. One was the Montreal Protocol, which was the international protocol that helped us phase out ozone-depleting substances. Remember that big hole in the ozone still shows up some years, bigger than others. And then the other one was the U.S. EPA's acid rain program, which had been based on a cap-and-trade program. And so both of these protocols were really aimed at reducing pollutants from a point source. And that means emissions from a smokestack or emissions from a plant that was creating a certain type of product um, in the ozone-depleting substances case. So this framework was very particular to these two previous platforms, and it kind of locked us into a certain box in climate policy. And that was that we always talk about CO2e, which is carbon dioxide equivalents, right? Greenhouse gases have warming properties. They have different warming properties. Some warm faster and stronger than others. Methane is anywhere between 34 to 78 times stronger than carbon, right? And then you amortize that to a 100-year time frame. So scientists were like, well, carbon left lasts in the atmosphere for 100 years, so we're going to amortize everything to be an equivalent to carbon. So it kind of flattened out the way we look at greenhouse gas emissions. Why does this matter? If you're a policy wonk, it matters because suddenly you're giving policymakers who are in office for maybe two to eight years a framework that's based on a 100-year time horizon, which might make sense in science, but in politics means that it took us decades to figure out that we needed to go after these short-lived, high-potency greenhouse gases, things like methane, things like hexafluoride, things like nitrous oxide, these ones that have hundreds of times more warming impact than carbon but because they're amortized over a lifetime may look a little less. So how you frame something really changes how you manage it. And this frame that we got from the Kyoto Protocol, I'm not saying is necessarily bad, but it led us to do two things. One, it kind of flattened out the way we looked at greenhouse gases. Water vapor is the most prevalent greenhouse gas on the planet, but it's not looked at in the Kyoto Protocol framework as a greenhouse gas because it cycles rapidly through the atmosphere. There's implications of that when it comes to Earth systems, but just to understand that that framework gave us an interesting playing field, and it really went after point sources. So it, maybe it's good for things like your emissions factor for your electricity, or basically like the emissions in your energy mix, and regulating that. But it's not really good for how the planet actually works physically. Like it doesn't have any biology in it, right? It doesn't have any chemistry in it so much as that it's like, what's the fossil fuel content of the thing you're burning at the point that it's burned? That's kind of how it looks at everything, which again is good for certain aspects of climate change, but doesn't give you a full suite of tools to really address the problem, nor does it clearly articulate the whole problem. So now we have several generations of climate policy and climate action, if you will, that is based on a relatively flat framework. And how the earth works is the earth works in cycles. The earth works biologically, it works chemically, it works physically, and it's constantly regulating itself. That system is driven by carbon at its base. So instead of looking at carbon as a bad thing, which we do in the traditional climate policy framework, carbon is seen as a pollutant. If you look at from a biogeochemical framework, carbon is seen as the driving force the organizing principle of how the planet functions. And I think those are two very different approaches. You can approach it as a pollutant, which you need to stop, or you can approach it as a moving thing that drives many other aspects of the life cycle on the planet. And I think 
where we need to move from is managing carbon as if it's a pollutant to managing carbon as if it's the driver, which it is, of the major life cycles on this planet. And that's kind of what I want to share with you a little bit about today is like, what do I mean it's a driver? Yeah, I'm like entranced by Calarose Ostrander. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's fascinating to understand where things started from. So, okay, I know you want to talk about the carbon cycle, and I would love for you to talk about the carbon cycle. What would be super helpful is if you could just break it down. Yeah, it's so much more fun to approach, you know, how do we interact with our climate from a relational standpoint than a regulatory standpoint. And and that's not to say I'm necessarily anti-regulation, but when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so it's much more fun to have at least a better toolkit. There's so much we don't know, so much we don't know. And I always try to keep that in mind because science is constantly evolving. But what's wonderful about the carbon cycle is that people have known and understood how energy moves on the planet in a variety of ways for a long time. The medicine wheel has a lot of connections to the carbon cycle and how it drives light on the planet, the Native American medicine wheel. There are lots of different indigenous wisdoms that carry this same understanding of how energy moves through life. And I think, you know, science, modern Western science is just kind of getting there with a field that we call biogeochemistry. So it's really about, you know, how biology and chemistry work together on the planet to make life. This is pretty fun. Now the carbon cycle. Okay, so let's get back to the carbon cycle. I worked with Kiss the Ground to create their first piece of media called The Soil Story. And that story really tells the basics of the carbon cycle. And it's important to understand, again, that carbon is not the enemy. It's the building block of life. It's the thing around which all the other things organize. And to understand how it's organized or it moves, we'll just simplify it a little bit and step back and say there are five major forms that carbon takes on the planet. And and scientists call these pools. It's not like a swimming pool, but it's a useful analogy. It's like there is carbon in the bodies of trees and plants and grasses. The scientists call that a biosphere. So that's a major place where carbon lives is in the biosphere. Carbon also lives in a liquid form in the ocean in the form of carbonic acid. And in fact, the ocean is the world's largest carbon sink, we'll say. Carbon moves from the atmosphere to the ocean and then it gradually calcifies and deposits on the ocean floor where it moves into ultimately what we call the pedosphere, which is the ground. This might be through rock weathering or calcium weathering in the ocean, or it might be through mineralization of carbon on land. And carbon in the soil is also in an organic form. So we call that whole pool, the soil pool, the pedosphere. And then you have the atmosphere, and then you have the rock, all the rocks as well. And we call that the fossil pool. That's where the oil is. That's where diamonds are. So there's these five pools, the land and the plants and the animals, the oceans, the soil, the atmosphere, and the rock or fossil, where we have our fossil fuels come from. And carbon is moving in its form through these pools at different speeds. And as it moves, it has different functions on the planet. So primary function that we're most familiar with probably is that we breathe in oxygen and we breathe out CO2. And then the other function that is really important to understand is that the single biggest driver of carbon among those pools 
besides the burning of fossil fuels is photosynthesis. So you've got five pools and carbon moves in between them at different speeds over time and through different processes. It can weather with rock, we can burn oil and put it into the atmosphere. When plants photosynthesize, they capture carbon. All the carbon and carbohydrates has been derived from the air. So carbohydrates are sugars made by plants. Plants make those by capturing that carbon from the air and binding it through the process of photosynthesis to make a carbohydrate. And so when you start to understand, okay, carbon is the main building block of life. Everything builds its life around it in some way. The shells in the ocean build their bodies off of carbonate. You know, we are carbon-based life forms. As far as we know, there's no other ones, but maybe. <laughs> maybe there's Next some silicon-based <laughs> life forms out there. <laughs> there's, it's been hypothesized, sure. the government knows. <laughs> anyway, this is a carbon cycle. So you have five pools, carbon moves between them. Now, what's interesting is that we've just put this cycle out of balance. So we've moved so much carbon from the fossil pool and the soil pool and the plant pool We've just burned it, mined it, tilled it, put it into the atmosphere. And so now it's just out of balance. There's too much in the atmosphere. And that's essentially trapping heat. What happens is all those little carbon molecules in the atmosphere get really dense and the heat can't release through them. So when you hear something like 350.org, which is a really big climate activist group, why is it 350? Well, it's 350 parts per million. That's tiny, tiny molecules of carbon in the atmosphere. What happens at 350 parts per million is that the molecules get so dense that you stop being able to release a certain amount of heat. So why we want to get back down to 350 parts per million is because that starts to open up and allow heat to release, essentially allows the planet to cool again. So just to understand again, carbon in the atmosphere, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's what keeps the planet warm, but too much of it traps too much heat. And that's what's happening. And then that destabilizes a number of other systems. Why? Because water follows carbon. Okay, so your first building block of life is carbon. Then we all know that water is life. You can't have life without water. Well, what drives water? Carbon does on a biogeochemical cycle. So more carbon in the atmosphere, more heat in the atmosphere, and when the atmosphere is hotter, it holds more water vapor. Water vapor in turn is a greenhouse gas, so it heats it up even faster. And that's what we call like a cascade of effects. And you have one effect that heats up the atmosphere, you get more water that heats up the atmosphere even faster, and you have kind of a negative feedback cycle, we call that in climate change. Okay, so but more carbon in the soil, it changes the structure of the soil, the physical properties of the soil, the chemical and the biological, and essentially allows more water to come in and to stick around for longer. So when you move more carbon into the soil, you are automatically getting more water in that soil system. And when you have carbon and water, what do you have? Well, you have life and those little early mycelia, the microbiota, the bacteria, the viruses, the fungi, they come along and they start, they want sugar. So they've got their water, they've got their carbon, and now they want sugar. And they're trading all their little minerals and nutrients with plants. So what that means is that when you get carbon in the soil and water in the soil, you're also getting the beginnings of life and biology, and that biology then stacks nutrients on it. So in the stacking order of how the world works from a biogeochemical perspective, very simplified, is carbon, Water follows carbon, and then nutrients stack on top of carbon and water. And this is why you'll hear people in the regenerative agriculture space say, 
while food that's grown in soil that's healthy, soil that has carbon and water and life in it, has more nutrients. And why is that? It's because all of that life in that soil is organizing the nutrients around it. It's a really cool thing that happens. So when you get more carbon in the soil, you get more organic matter. That organic matter is food for all of the little life forms. And the inorganic carbon is shelter. So essentially, like when you're delivering compost, you're delivering food and shelter to all the little tiny, tiny creatures that live in your soil. So they get really happy and then they create this nutrient availability to the plants because they want to trade with the plants for sugar. And what happens at that point is that then those plants get more nutrients, they grow better, faster, and in that way they're able to transfix more carbon, turn it into carbohydrates, and share it with the soil community. And not all that carbon that's shared gets eaten. Right? A lot of it gets stored, and, and one of the big scientific findings in the past decade or so that has really led us to understand why agriculture can be a solution to help rebalance Earth's climate is that that carbon doesn't just cycle back out. At first we thought it went in, microbes ate it, and then it cycled back out. And that's true. But there's a good portion of it that actually gets stored in what used to be called the occluded light fraction. It's like essentially a layer where none of the microbes can get at it. It's been transfixed. It's inorganic. It's not edible. And that not edible carbon is the carbon that gets sequestered over time. And that can happen. We used to think it took 100 years for that to happen. But it turns out it can take less than six months for carbon to be moved from the atmosphere into a stable, fixed isotope in the soil. So that essentially vastly changed our understanding of what photosynthesis can do to move carbon in a more, I guess you'd say, substantial fashion over a longer period of time than just photosynthesizing and then releasing it again. So that was a major scientific, you know, wow, it turns out you can build durable soil carbon so much faster than we thought, right? Can you extract this too? Or it's like so deep or like, how do they measure it? How do you see it? Oh yeah, this is, so this is the hard part, right? So we know more about Mars than we do about soil processes, turns out. <laughs> turns out we haven't spent a lot of money on understanding how things work under us. We really love things above us, which is great, but you know, under us is good too. You gotta be balanced. So one of the jobs that really taught me about how the carbon cycle works was working for the Marin Carbon Project, and they employed a number of scientists who are biogeochemists. And the answer is complicated. So generally, that durable carbon gets moved lower in the ground, but it's all around. It's just in different little pockets. Think about like a carbon molecule and all the things around it. So it's either bound up with something that's inaccessible or it's sort of free floating and it can be food for somebody. Sort of like a simple way to look at it. It doesn't look any different. What you can see is if soil is rich in carbon, it'll be dark in color and it'll be more moist and it will have that sort of petrichor smell, that smell you get after the rain. And what that smell is, is the presence of acetamides, which is a certain kind of bacteria that also is found in compost. It's a very beneficial soil microbe. So you can't really get at it. It's just in its little tiny form turning into something that cannot be eaten by the soil microbes. It doesn't form a layer, although it does accumulate down deeper usually, but it's all around in the soil. How it gets there exactly, 
I don't know. And I don't know that we know because <laughs> there's so many complicated processes about how all of these relationships exist. And there's hundreds of them and, then, and thousands of them. And we just don't understand all the mechanisms, which is why it's really hard to calculate exactly how much carbon is going to be sequestered by what practice. And this is what gets me back to the Kyoto framework, which is in this Kyoto-based climate policy that dominates today, you have to be able to account for every unit of carbon because it's it's used to assigning emissions factors. Oh, your electricity has this emissions factor. This is the mix of renewables or fossil fuel sources that make up your electricity. Your vehicle fleet on average has X fuel efficiency. Okay, we know the emissions for gasoline, for diesel. We know those emissions factors, right, for ethanol. So that's kind of how you count a carbon footprint in the point source framework. But when it comes to the life forces, like when carbon moves from the atmosphere into the bodies of plants and in the soil, where it goes and how much goes where, we don't understand the mechanisms of those principles. And that makes it really challenging to account for under this framework. What we do know, and I think what's so much more interesting, is not trying to bean count it to absolute infinity and beyond, which everyone's trying to do right now. There's so many startup companies that are like, oh, we'll measure how much carbon is in your soil. We'll model how much carbon goes in from this practice. And those models are useful to some extent in policy because it's sort of a bridge. And those models are what the U.S. government has based a lot of its recent IRA funding on soil health around. And those models are highly limited. They're good. They're as good as we can get, but they are still limited. What we do know is that a stock of carbon, so think about all that carbon in the atmosphere, it's like a big stock. Well, photosynthesis provides a flow for that carbon to move from the atmosphere back into the soil. And because we now know that that flow can happen much more quickly than we thought before, and because the soil is such a big kind of think about it as like, a bathtub that's not full. So we, through tilling, through burning forests, through our land use, we've released tons and tons and tons of carbon into the atmosphere. Well, it turns out that we can fill that back up and more, that you can actually move more carbon back into that system. And unlike more carbon in the atmosphere, which is bad for us, more carbon in the soil is good for us, right? Because we get more water and more nutrients. Now, let's talk about the oceans here for a second. So the oceans tend to absorb or sequester 50 to 80% of the carbon that's released in any given year into the atmosphere. Well, that ocean bathtub is pretty full of carbon. It can't really handle much more. So we've heard about ocean acidification. Well, ocean acidification is driven by carbonic acid, which comes from that carbon in the atmosphere moving into the ocean. And so in its liquid form, that is corroding the bodies of all these little shell creatures and plankton. Not only that, it's reducing the carbonate in the water, which is the base form of carbon that those things need to build their bodies in the first place. So it's double bad. Too much carbon in the ocean is not good. And it's heating up. And that heat differential is driving things like more intense storms, but it's also really messing with a majority of ocean life, right? It's hard to live in the ocean right now. So that carbon bathtub in the ocean is full. We don't want any more carbon to go in there. What we want to do is to pull enough carbon from the atmosphere into the soil and through the bodies of plants and trees and grasses so that that carbon can come out of the atmosphere so the oceans can rebalance. 
the biggest lever that we have as humans is agriculture. So if photosynthesis is the biggest way that carbon is moved quickly through these systems, plankton is what pulls it down in the ocean, trees, grasses on land, agriculture is the way that we manage photosynthesis. Agriculture is the single largest human form of photosynthetic management on the planet because we're growing food right every day or we're grazing animals. So the idea being that we use that lever of agriculture to pull enough carbon out of the atmosphere so that heat can release and then the oceans can also release. And that's like a really big picture. We could argue about a thousand things in between all those pieces, but I just want your listeners to understand that instead of carbon being like, this is bad here, this is bad there, and it is, we don't want to be like the amount of emissions coming out of a fracking well at the source is tremendous, right? The amount coming out of a coal mine is huge. And, and we just, you know, are uncovering how much more comes out of these than we thought. You can see that when we have infrared sensors and satellite sensors now. And I'm really excited about the satellites because they're going to tell us not what we think is happening, but what's actually happening. And that's a, a really good advancement. And I think the correspondence of beginning to understand the role of agriculture and climate change simultaneously with the advent of the satellite and sensor technology is going to allow us to see those stocks and flows better. So we can get away from all this bean counting, carbon accounting, carbon footprinting into, well, where is it going and where did it come from? And how do you move it? And those questions, I think, are much more interesting questions because, you know, the way we grow our food, our fiber, fuels, the way we grow medicines, the way we manage forests or oceans, these are all ways that we can move that carbon and we can move it in a positive direction. So that big cycle is important to just kind of get a sense of in your bones and remember that carbon is the driver, water follows carbon, and then nutrients stack on top of water and carbon. And Specifically, you get different cycles of, say, nitrogen or sulfur that begin to interact with different properties in the soil, like silica. And those things get very, very, very interesting and very complicated. But that's for the experts to continue to work on. <laughs> the rest of us just need to know that the planet works. And if we just work with the planet, it's going to work a lot better. We just heard from Calarose Ostrander, climate change advisor and co-creator and host of Rain and Shine. If you have any nature or science questions for Calarose, you can reach her at rainshineweekly at gmail.com. You've been listening to Crisis to Come Back, your Western Colorado climate action podcast, produced and hosted by me, Corey Stanton. Crisis to Come Back is a local and regional weekly short form podcast that explores the impacts of climate change and the state of warming in Delta County and Western Colorado, and local climate actions taken by individual citizens, businesses, and government. Get informed, inspired, and empowered by listening to these short episodes and become a part of the solution to addressing our rapidly changing local climate. This podcast was made possible in part by the West Elk Community Fund and Citizens for a Healthy Community. If you have questions, comments, or want to learn more about this podcast, please reach out to us by emailing crisis to come back at chc the number four you.org. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.